Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. I'm so curious how many of you all are here for the first time today. There is anyone. We have a, so raise your hand up high. So everyone, the many of you who've been coming to the chapel for a long time, if you can just look around and see who these new people are. And before the day is over, um, I hope that you'll reach out to them. Everyone else in the room, I would say, these are your experts. They're people that have been coming to the chapel for a long time and probably can best answer what this place is. I would like to start quickly, though, in just giving you a few words of introduction for those of you all who, who are here for the first time. The chapel was opened in 1971 as a sacred space dedicated to art, spirituality, and human rights. It is also the complete work of art by an artist named Mark Rothko, including these 14 huge paintings that surround us. And you'll notice that we have all natural light coming through the ceiling. So depending on the time of day that you come and the time of year, your experience in here will be very different and the paintings will appear very differently. We have ongoing public programs that we offer here that sit at the intersection of art, spirituality, and human rights. And we're open every single day of the year from 10 to 6 as a quiet place for reflection and contemplation. And the series that you're here for today, 12 Moments Experiencing Spiritual and Faith Traditions, we've been offering now since 2005. It's once a month, the first Wednesday of the month from 12 to 1. And it's an opportunity where we invite our friends from various uh, faith and spiritual practices all over Houston to come and share an educational and experiential offering. So it's something where we're sharing tools that you, regardless of what your belief systems are, that you can take and, and uh, apply to your daily life. So I wanna also bring to your attention that on your printed program, we have a listing of upcoming meditations in this series, so you'll see there's a variety, and we hope to see you back for those. And then on the back of the program, we do have some ongoing other programs, uh, including this Thursday. I'd like to invite you all to join us for International Women's Day. And we've invited this really incredible organization called Force out of Baltimore, who have been creating um, a monument quilt, which is comprised of individuals' stories of uh, sexual assault. And those uh, quilts will be on display on our grounds all day on Thursday. And then we'll have a, a guided meditation inside the chapel. So I hope you'll return for that. So now I'd like to introduce our friends from the Zoroastrian community who um, have been longtime friends of the chapel, who've led many meditations over the years and participate in our, um, our uh, Thanksgiving service that we have every single year. First, I'd like to begin by introducing Folly Engineer. And you'll see there is a, a small bio that's listed that you can read. I'm just gonna lift up a couple things. He is a Zoroastrian by birth, educated in India and worked in Pakistan. He's been a member of the Theosophical Society since 1966 and served as the president of the 106-year-old Houston Lodge for over seven years. And he's a member of the Zoroastrian Association of Houston. And he's gonna be leading our meditation today. And first, our friend Kai Dotawala, who is the chairperson of the Zoroastrian Association of Houston's outreach community um, and also an environmentalist by profession is going to give an introduction about the faith. And he can tell you more about the Zoroastrian Association of Houston um, and the different activities they offer. So please join me in welcoming them both. Thank you all. Thank you. <coughs> thank you and good afternoon. Uh, thank you for inviting us to share our experience with all of you. Uh, I am a Zarthushti or a Zoroastrian, as we are known in the Western world, so is Mr. Fali, engineer. And we are here to share the vision of a very ancient prophet who was born in what is modern-day Tajikistan, somewhere in the Bronze Age. And at that time period, he came up with a unique view of the world. He basically said that God was all good and all perfect, and nothing evil could emanate from something that was all perfect, and nothing destructive could emanate from something that's all perfect. And therefore, God does not bring about destruction of any kind. So anything that brings about destruction is evil. And uh, th this was a viewpoint that he brought about wh when the rest of the world believed in, uh, in, in a situation where people were born 
There were a lot of marauders who went and, and stole from, from peaceful pastoralists of that time period. And he felt that anybody who was destroying the pastures, destroying the environment, destroying the waters, destroying the earth, were evil people. And this was the vision that he presented. So that's, that's what is unique about the Zathrishti faith is where basically we, we do not support anything that is destructive. Not that the others do, but that is what is unique where we, where we find anything that's destructive. And that's kind of what led me to my profession of being an environmentalist because there are seven archangels or Amesha Spentas who take care of the earth, the water, the fire, uh, etc., and uh, the sky, etc. And so basically, if we are polluting any of these things, we are causing harm to God's good creation, and then we are going against what has been taught. So that just is a very short view of what our faith believes, and there is much more, but I would like to give most time to Mr. Engineer. And I'll just end with a short prayer. Vaishtem Asti Ushtasti Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. You can hear. We are very grateful and actually honored to be invited to this place today. And we would like to thank the administration of the chapel for organizing this presentation today. And we would like to thank all of you present who have taken the time and the trouble to attend. For many decades now, Rothko Chapel has been a haven for seekers, a beacon, if you like, by presenting the teachings and the traditions and the cultures of major religions, which would have greatly benefited those who attended those programs. And Rothko Chapel has done this with no partiality. He didn't favor one tradition over the other. It has made no distinction based on race, caste, creed, or gender, which is rare these days. Rothko Chapel may not know that they have followed in letter and spirit the first object of the Theosophical Society, which says, aims to create a nucleus of universal humanity without distinction of race, caste, creed, color, or gender. Also, the motto of the society is there is no religion higher than truth. And Rothko programs do imbibe the spirit of that motto. There is a branch of the society in Houston, which is now 106 years old, and I have left some literature on the desk about the society, the branch here. 
All meetings are free, open to the public, and there is no compulsion to believe or not to believe, but just to take in what they feel is beneficial to them. Now, Kayomas has given you a very brief, within the short time, some aspects of our ancient religion of which I was, I, I was being born, a Zoroastrian religion, very ancient, named after the prophet, but the tenets are very relevant to this day. And our community has prospered and benefited by following these tenets as closely as possible. So I will not go further into the theology of our religion, but offer you a practice which I think is the need of the day, very important practice. And I'll try to explain why this practice is so necessary at this time. We are all being aware, most of us, at the present time, the demands of life are greater than our capacity to cope. This has been an experience of a lot of people. We find that time itself seems to have been speeded up. If we are on a treadmill of time, the treadmill has speeded up and we have to keep pace with that speed. We find that we have less time and more things to do. And this keeps us always in a hurried mode. Now, our capacity is not increasing, but the demands are increasing. It is evident that we are being subjected to a pressures for which our system is not designed. And the result is that there's an overload on us which we are incapable of handling. And when this overload, it impinges on our system, it leaves a mark. And when these marks accumulate, we get distress. And it can be shown outwardly in ill health or imbalance in our emotional nature, which leads to irrational acts as we are witnessing. It leads to confusion in the mental, so our actions are not helpful to us. We can say that this stress in us, this overload, is a toxicity in us. And all our feelings and thoughts and actions have a component of this toxicity so that the outcome is not what we wanted or liked. And we find this common everywhere. And when large numbers of people all over the world function with this toxicity in them, caused by an overload of pressure, then the outcomes are highly damaging and detrimental. We see this clearly on the world. Force being used to settle disputes. In lack of tolerance. Injustice. Many ills are due to this stress-filled functioning. And since our capacity is not increasing, this can, might go more and more. Now, this word capacity that I used, I would like to substitute another word for it, which I would call 
a consciousness. Everything alive is conscious to different degrees. There is no dead matter anywhere. We can define our consciousness as a response we make to the demand of life. And this is different for different people. Different levels of capacity to cope is different. Different levels of consciousness. Higher the consciousness, the greater is the capacity to cope. Lower the consciousness, less capacity and more toxicity in our system. This is similar to the situation when a person is financially weak, lacks the dollars to meet their expense. So it's become very difficult to pay the bills and to earn a living. And that causes a lot of pain and stress and anxiety in a person who is financially strapped for collar, for cash. Similarly, we struggle with life because we are told that our level of consciousness is very poor. And just as the man who is poor in his dollar, we are poor in the currency of life. I would define consciousness as a currency of life because it's different in different people. And we are told that we are well below the poverty line of this currency of life. So when we have this poverty of currency of life, we define life as a struggle, as a battle because of this poverty. And when a large number of people display this poverty as at present, we see the situation playing out in the world where the result is injustice or inequality and other greed, corruption, not because the person is basically wants that, but the toxicity in us which we have absorbed knowingly or unknowingly makes us function like that. And we see the difficulty all over the world. Now, many solutions have been offered for this. There's a medical solution, a sociological solution, a psychological counseling. But the difficulty is that these solutions arise at the same level where the problem was created. So it cannot be permanent or very reliable. That is why I mentioned early that what we are presenting today is meets the pressing need of the present day. Now, if we look at nature, how does it function? We can ask this question that how is it that is a vast cosmic organization, infinite variety, infinite distances, and yet it shows no signs of aging or de deterioration? How is it? It can do this. And when we examine the functioning of nature, we find that it operates on the law of cycles. A fundamental law of nature is the law of cycles. And like an example is night and day. Night nothing seems to be happening. But if there was no night, we know that life as we know it would be impossible. At night, nature 
regenerates itself, and then a day comes, it is active as before. There are longer cycles, seasons, winter, everything slows down and then speeds up in the spring. Even the blinking of an eye is a cycle. When I close my eyes, I can't see, and when I open them, I see again a cycle. And the blinking is to clean the eye. If I didn't blink, my eyes would be damaged. So nature preserves its ability to function properly by having a cycle of slowing down and then speeding up, of deep rest and activity, of stillness and motion. And we do not have this cycle in our routine. And because of that lack of a cycle, we are at odds with nature. And you can see that we are hurting nature and the environment more than helping it because our functioning lacks that essential cycle, which is the great law of life itself, cycles. Large cycles, small cycles. Now, 60 or 70 years ago, very few people had heard in the West of meditation. It was then considered a new age practice or a fad, not relevant or important or necessary for the everyday hardworking citizens intent on following the American dream, so to speak. But over the years, meditation has become more prominent and is no longer now considered a fad or something not necessary. It has now become totally necessary because of this need of handling the stress, the toxicity in our system, that can be to great extent remedied by a practice of meditation. It's now accepted that the stress levels do require urgent attention and the best way is to do it through a meditation. And I'll try to explain how that happens. I was a qualified teacher of TM in 1975 by the founder Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Switzerland and have been teaching it ever since. And it has helped a lot of people. Today's meditation, Aura, is an adaptation of that TM using a word of the language in which the prophet received his revelation, an ancient language called Avesta. Two great migrations had taken place thousands of years ago and one branch came to India, and the other branch came to the present Middle East. And the languages they both spoke were sister languages, Sanskrit in India and Avesta in the Middle East. And so we will use, because today by rotation, we have been asked to talk about our Zoroastrian religion. Now, TM has this advantage that it requires no concentration. Many people are put off by saying that I cannot concentrate, so I will not be able to meditate. This is not the case with TM, 
it asks you not to concentrate. It does not require any special abilities to do it. There is no age limitation. We teach children of six or eight or 10 or 100. No faith is required if you do the technique properly. You can do it with noise around you, so you don't have to go be in a quiet place. So it's very practical and it's helpful. Now, today, I will try to explain the connection between the stress release and meditation. If you ask nature about the stress release, it will give the answer in two words, deep rest. When we are rested properly, sleep well at night, we do feel energized and refreshed. And the nights we don't sleep well, we wake up tired, somewhat depressed, and the whole day doesn't go too well. Everything is irritable, we are impatient, upset. Deep rest is a fundamental requirement for our functioning and release of pressure. Because when we give deep rest, nature functions in us to remove the obstacles to growth. Nature is growth-oriented at all times, all places. Everything is growing, expanding, and we are expected to grow. But we are not growing properly because of this toxicity we have absorbed during activity. What happens is nature, in effect, says that if you induce deep rest, I will do the rest. And that's what happens actually in meditation. The deep rest we induce in the meditation is caused by decreasing mental activity. When you decrease mental activity when you are awake and not asleep, the mind becomes more orderly over time. The tests done on the brain during meditation do show that after six, nine months, the brain, two halves of the brain, the left and the right, show a greater cohesion or function more in step with each other rather than oppose each other as at present. All other tensions, when we give deep rest, for instance, our blood is purified. Now, we don't experience that in the meditation, but when the research has been done, we find, do find that the blood is purified. People complain that I am tired, I sleep well, eat well, and the reason is that if they are anxious and worried, waste products accumulate called lactates, and they then reduce the energy of the supply of the blood. And when we meditate properly, these lactates are reduced and we get the energy. Tension uh, in the stress chemicals are reduced. I've left some literature that gives the scientific findings of this meditation. Today we can't teach it in full, but we can give a sample of it. And what we can do is, we'll do today to practice this meditation, we'll do it in three small steps each step leading to the other. And if you find it useful and think it will be helpful, 
then there's a sign-up sheet, and we can be in touch and meet and complete the practice. And you can then learn it and then do it on your own at home. Now, for this practice, we have to sit comfortably. If you're comfortable, that's fine. And if you feel that you need to support your back, then you can sit on the floor and support your back because there is some element of relaxation is possible. So that's whatever you do. You can move during the meditation because you're not going to concentrate. The benefit of this meditation is it asks you not to concentrate. So you just have to be comfortable. And after these three steps are over, then we can take questions and answers about what you felt, experienced, or any other question you may have about this talk. So now, if we are ready, I will give you a word, a word of power derived from that ancient language of Esther. And I will tell you how to use it properly, which is very important. So if we are ready, now kindly speak this word audibly, Ahur. Can you all repeat Ahur? Please repeat it. Ahur, Ahur, Ahur. More quietly, Ahur, Ahur, Ahur. Now just whisper it to yourself, whisper it. Now mentally, without moving tongue or lips, mentally. Open the eyes. Now, throughout the practice, it's very important that we keep the eyes closed. Don't open the eyes during this practice. Now I will tell you how to use this word properly. If it's not used properly, it will not give the benefit we spoke about. Just as if a key is not put properly in the lock, it doesn't open the lock. No. Mental repetition of this word, mental, is always in, it's not spoken out, it's always mental. Mental repetition of this word is not a clear repetition or a clear pronunciation. It's just a sound or an idea in the mind. Just an idea, a sound. And if at any time it seems to be going away, leaving the mind, we don't try to hold on, we let it go. So we don't think the word loudly or very clearly 
or with any regularity. There's no rhythm to it. It's just an idea, and if it is leaving, we let it go. Now close the eyes and continue. Open the eyes. You might have felt some quietness or easiness. Can you put up your hand if you felt it? Good. It should go almost by itself because we don't concentrate and we don't control the word. We don't control the word. We think it easily. And if it's changing, fading, going away, we let it go. When another thought comes, another thought, then quietly come back to the word. When a thought comes, then come back to the word. Now close the eyes and continue.
Open the eyes. If you found that the word was gone and thoughts came, that was the correct meditation. And whenever we forget the word, we quietly come back to it. But we do not hold on to it or resist the thoughts or push out thoughts. We don't make much effort because that will not give us the deep rest that we are looking for. Now we'll meditate for a little longer time. As I said, keep the eyes closed throughout and I'll tell you when to stop. So close the eyes and continue.
Now, slowly open the eyes. Are there any questions like to ask about your experience? Any other questions? Hold on, wait for the mic. I was wondering what um, to do when you get drowsy, when you find yourself sort of drifting off. I can't hear you. You can't. Uh, what do you do? Uh, how, how do you, uh, what do you do when you start to find yourself falling asleep or getting drowsy? When you get drowsy, pardon? Sleepy. sleepy. Pardon? When you're doing the meditation and become sleepy, how do you, what do you do then with the word? Can, can you come here? I don't <laughs> mind. Maybe I can ask the question for you. <laughs> Uh, when you're meditating and you get a little sleepy or tired. Yeah, yeah. Now the idea of this meditation to induce rest. And if the body is under some strain and when the mind decreases its mental activity as it does with this word, the body gets rest and sometimes it induces sleep. If you feel sleepy, during the practice, it is a benefit, but when the sleep is there, we stop the word and let the sleep help us out. And when the sleep is not there, we resume the meditation. This is to be done, you know, for 20 minutes, twice a day. But today it was just a sample and if you meet me, I can give you the whole practice, what to do and how to do it properly. But if you feel that it is helpful to you, you are free to meet me and we can continue to show you or instruct you totally. Is there any other questions anybody had? I'll try to speak so you can hear me. Can you hear can you hear me? No, he can't. Okay. Uh, tell me about the word that you selected, Ahu. Did you hear? Hmm? The, the word Abu, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. I took this word as a short form of our deity, the supreme lord of wisdom called Ahura Mazda. Just as you have the word Jehovah or Allah, in our scriptures, the lord of wisdom, supreme, is Aura Mazda. So I took that word Ahu and used it in this meditation. By itself, it doesn't mean anything. And that is the whole idea of this meditation. When the mind receives a word that does not create the next thought, it slows down. Our thinking is by link chain of thoughts, one after the other. We are hardly aware we are thinking. Now when you introduce this word, ahu, that link is not immediate, is broken temporarily. And when it's broken, the mind feels some reduction of its thought process. It's not automatic. And our nature is such that if we like something, we want more of it, plus or minus. That's our nature. So when the mind has a break, so to speak, with this word, 
it slows down because it wants more quietness, more peace. And so this process is actually, we don't direct the meditation, we trigger an opportunity for the mind to feel quietness. And as it feels this quietness, the body gets deep rest. And in that deep rest, as I said, nature functions to remove the obstacles in our growth. So it's a two-way process. The word inducing quietness in the mind and a deep rest to the body, releasing the tension and the stresses that are hampering our growth. That's, that's why this word is used. In TM, a similar words are used but today, because it was a talk on our religion, I took a neutral word and used it for this meditation. In TM, there are different words. So we're going to close the meditation now. I want to honor you all's time since you committed to, to just the hour. But I invite you all to stay if you would like. Um, we do want to go ahead and resume the silence of the chapel so the general visitors can come back in. So we do want to invite you to talk to each other, but if you don't mind taking it out on the plaza. And then we hope to see you all here again. Please join me just one last time in thanking Mr. Fali and uh, Kai for being here today. Thank you.